from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. The 2020 election was a historic year for lawmakers who identify as transgender. Voters across the country elected six transgender lawmakers to state office. Sarah McBride was one of those lawmakers. Elected as a state senator for Delaware's 1st District, Sarah is now the highest-ranking transgender lawmaker in America. Her candidacy and her voice in transgender advocacy have shown how trans people can become powerful leaders in public life. Sarah joins us today to discuss her journey into politics and into trans advocacy and to let us know what we can all do to build a more inclusive public life. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Molly. It's great to be on with you. I want to say, first off, a very, very belated congratulations on your victory. I'm curious, what was it like the moment that you realized you had won? What did that feel like? Surreal, more than anything else. I had spent the entire election day out at different polling locations across the district. The final polling location I visited as polls closed was my old middle school and high school, Cab Calloway. And so it was really special ending the campaign where so much of my journey started at that public school. And then on the way from that polling location to what I hoped would be a victory party with a small group of family and friends... I was in the car going, one person driving me, and I was just clicking refresh on the Department of Elections webpage over and over and over again until about 15 minutes after polls closed, they uploaded the entirety of the absentee vote, which was a significant portion, obviously, this election of the vote. And the lead that our campaign had at that point was just clearly insurmountable. And within seconds of refreshing that page, my phone lights up with a call from Danica Rome, the first out trans state legislator in the country. And it was just so fitting that the first call that I got after seeing the numbers come in and knowing for sure that we were almost definitely going to win, that it came from someone whose shoulders I was standing on, who had done so much to support me and other trans candidates, really drove home the moment and hopefully the message that my election and the election of other trans candidates can send to trans young people across the country. To the extent that you can share, what did Danica tell you? I picked up and she called me Slayer McBride (laughs) because in the primary, we had won by a pretty significant margin. And then in the general, we won by a pretty significant margin. So that's what she started calling me as election results kept coming in. And she just shared how proud of me and my campaign team she was and said she couldn't wait for us to be able to celebrate in person together once we got past COVID. There was so much work that had gone into winning. There was so much work that our campaign team had put into a campaign that lasted a year and a half and went through a global pandemic. Yeah, you started when you could still actually knock on doors. Right, right. We started in July of 2019, and thank God we were able to to get those doors in before the pandemic hit. We then moved to entirely a phone banking operation, which were still great conversations, a little bit more stressful, a little bit more variety in what we got, but still overall really meaningful conversations. But it was a long journey, um, year and a half, and frankly, a long journey in my own life to that moment of seeing something come to fruition to 
seeing something become a reality that for so long had seemed so impossible that it was almost incomprehensible to me. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because you started in politics long before you became a state senator. You were, among many things, student body president at American University where you were a student. Did you always know you wanted to be in politics? When did that first enter your mind? I was pretty young, probably pretty insufferable as a young person. (laughs) I at five or six thought I wanted to be an architect. And I really, I mean, to this day, I think architecture is one of the most beautiful forms of art that exists. And I thought I wanted to be an architect when I got older. And I would read about all the different beautiful buildings across the world that I thought were just one of the highest forms of art. And I stumbled across the White House and the U.S. Capitol. And in reading about those buildings from an architectural standpoint at six years old, I then started reading about the history that occurred in those buildings. And I discovered that in many ways, the story of our country, the story of every chapter in those history books is the story of advocates, activists, citizens, and courageous elected officials working together to bring about seemingly impossible change to include more and more people into our understanding of we the people. And I think as a young person who at the same time was struggling with who I am and how I fit into this world, I found a lot of hope in the stories in those history books. I found a lot of hope in our capacity to bring about change and to include people who too long were cast into the shadows or pushed to the margins of society. And I found hope for a better future for myself and for people like me. And so I got involved in politics because of that hope, because I thought that politics could be the place where we could make the most amount of change for the most number of people in the most number of ways possible and where hopefully I could help build a world where people like me and others could be treated with dignity, respect, and fairness. I'm curious about the hope you felt because our history books, especially, you know, in elementary and high school, are not known for their inclusivity and representation of, broadly speaking, a we the people. Where did that hope come from? Because I, growing up, never once in a history book saw the word transgender. I didn't even see the world LGBT. How did you get hope? I think it was both. It was in the progress that had already been made and in the possibility for progress that change proved. You're absolutely right. Our history books struggle to encapsulate the entirety of the diversity of our community and all of the different people and and individuals who made the change possible. And to your point, in finding hope in those history books, I also saw very clearly very early on that no one quite like me had ever made it very far in those history books, at least no one who was out. And so the hope was clear, but also the message of maybe where I belonged was clear, which was that trans people couldn't have a seat at the table. But again, I think in reading those history books and in finding the stories of social movements that are included, not enough, but are included in different chapters, seeing those were the points that we are most proud of as a country when we reflect back on them. Seeing that people had transformed impossibility and a possibility on a whole host of issues for a whole host of different communities. Not enough change, but something demonstrated that we could do the same on LGBTQ equality and on so many other issues. And I think that that's always been the challenge of being a progressive is striking that balance between 
never being pacified by our progress, but also never forgetting how far we've come. Because the moment we lose track of the change we've already brought, the moment we fall into the trap of thinking that nothing has ever changed is the moment we fall into a well of cynicism that will evaporate any kind of energy rooted in hope that we have to bring about the change that's still so urgently required of us. And so that is a challenge that progressives face. And I think for me, recognizing that history is a necessary ingredient for the path moving forward. The political arena, from an outsider perspective, seems like a challenging workplace environment on a good day, no matter who you are. And being trans in America, no matter the workplace, comes with huge roadblocks because of discrimination and legislation that targets trans people or doesn't do enough to put in place protections. Did you ever feel or think twice about going into politics because it just feels so like you'd be so vulnerable? Yes, at several points in my life. I mean, when I was growing up, I did not think it was possible for a trans person to be involved in politics. And it wasn't that I wanted to run for office. I just wanted to have a role in our democracy. I wanted to be able to advocate for change, whether that was as an advocate, a campaigner, a government official, regardless of where it was, I just wanted to be able to contribute to bringing about change, but it didn't seem possible. I mean, there weren't even that many examples of out trans people in advocacy in our political space at that point, publicly in our media. And it's hard to be what you can't see. And so in many ways, my journey to coming out was a process of giving up on any potential to have a seat at the table or have a role to play in our democracy. It was a process in many ways of mourning a future that I dreamed of, that I hoped for, but that didn't seem possible. And that mourning process eventually leads to acceptance, which was both the simultaneous acceptance of who I am, but also the acceptance that that would likely mean that there would be no future for someone like me. Um, Now, fortunately, in coming out, what I have seen is that the only things that are truly impossible are the things that we don't try. And as understandable as the fears that I had were, and as significant as the challenges and prejudices are in our society to this day, that as understandable as those fears were, in many cases, they were unfounded. And in many cases, they underestimated the ability for people to meet our stories and our lives with compassion and empathy that could bring about the kind of change that's necessary. And I think also, if I remember that you came out wall at American University as the president, and that on the whole, you were warmly received, that when you communicated, people for the most part were very positive and that your family is very accepting. Do you think that that kind of community support shaped your being able to be brave in politics? Absolutely. And in many ways, the support that I receive, the privileges that I have as a white trans woman born into a upper income family with a college education, with a supportive family, that those experiences, those privileges in many ways propelled me into advocacy work for two reasons. One is Coming out was the hardest thing that I had ever done up until that point, and yet it was still relatively easy compared to the experiences of so many other people. And I felt like it shouldn't be a privilege to be able to keep your family. It shouldn't be a privilege to be able to keep your job or to be able to stay in school, to 
be able to be welcomed by your community. Those should be a right guaranteed to everyone, not a privilege for the few. And then the second reason why I felt a responsibility personally to go into advocacy work was because those privileges helped me to shoulder whatever I would need to shoulder as a public advocate, that so many people are trying to just survive day to day. And if those privileges meant that I could absorb the hate, that I could face the negativity, the discrimination, the threats, that I had a responsibility to use that privilege in order to try to subvert the power of prejudice. And so those reasons really pushed me into advocacy work so that, one, other people wouldn't have to do that, and two, so that the experiences I had would no longer be unique. I also want to talk about your late partner, Andy, if if that's okay. The two of you had such a beautiful love story. Can you tell us a little bit about how that relationship with Andy helped you understand what kind of leader you wanted to be? Absolutely. That's a great way of asking the question because I think it connects with so many different aspects of my approach, my priorities, my values. Andy was truly the kindest, smartest, goofiest person I had ever met. When we met, he was about three years older than me, working as an advocate, seeking to expand healthcare to underserved communities, including the LGBTQ community. For those who are listening who haven't heard of Andy before, he was a transgender man. He had come out a couple of years before I did. And we met actually at a White House Pride reception. More accurately, we bumped into each other. And I'm ashamed to say I don't remember bumping into him, but he remembered bumping into me and messaged me on Facebook with the cutest, most Andy message where he said that he thought we'd get along swimmingly. In fact, I have a framed, someone did calligraphy of the message he sent me with the Hi, so hi, I'm Andy. I think we'd get along pretty swimmingly. And I thought, who the (laughs) hell says the word swimmingly? But clearly it's someone who I want to spend some time with. And I fell in love with him really quickly. About a year into our relationship, Andy was diagnosed with cancer. And he was lucky to have health insurance. We were both lucky to have a flexible employer. We were working at the same place by that point. An employer who helped us take time off without having to sacrifice our income so that we could focus on him getting the care he needed. He got radiation, chemotherapy, underwent surgery, got a clean bill of health. And then about eight months later, he received the news that every single cancer patient fears that his cancer was back. It had spread, and for him, it was terminal. When we found out that Andy didn't have much time left to live, he asked me to marry him and We married on the rooftop of our apartment building in August of 2014. And then just four days after that, he passed away. And my relationship with Andy was the most formative experience in my own life. He taught me how to love and be loved. But even more than that, he showed me a couple of things. And my relationship with him showed me a couple of things. One, his work and his life demonstrated to me how the ability to get health care is a foundational human right. That if you can't get the health care you need to live, then in many cases, nothing else matters because you won't be able to survive. He showed me 
in so many different ways, both in his own interpersonal relationships, but also in the positions he would take, sometimes in arguments we would have, discussions that we would have, debates we would have, how to live the values I fight for at work in my own life. The importance of taking the values that you're fighting for and to embody them in your relationships with other people, in your strategies and in your tactics that you utilize in your work. He was, I'll never forget, we had a debate that he totally won me over on outing anti-LGBTQ elected officials. And a lot of times the the argument is made that these folks are hypocrites and deserve to be outed. And Andy would say that we are fighting so that every person can have individual agency over their own sexual orientation and gender identity. And if the principle of the cause that you are fighting for is not an unbreakable first principle, then what is? And that principles only matter when you have every reason to violate them even seemingly altruistic reasons to violate them, that we should win based on our ideas and our arguments, not by outing people, not by weaponizing people's identities against them, which only fuels a foundation for discrimination against all LGBTQ people. That was the kind of person he was, right? This sort of notion of deep values, deep principles that are rooted in kindness and compassion. And then the final component of my relationship with Andy that I still think about every single day is the urgency of change. And after Andy passed away, I went through different stages of grief. And one of the things that I got angry about was the fact that Andy had died so young that he had only had about a quarter of his life as his authentic self. And that a lot of people have even less time than that. And For me, what that has kept front of mind is that every single time we ask people to allow for a slow conversation to take place before we treat them with dignity and ensure them opportunity, we are asking people to watch their one life pass by without the respect and fairness that everyone deserves. And that's just simply too much to ask of anyone. No, you've marked a lot of firsts for our country. You were the first out trans woman to work in the White House as an intern for the Obama administration, the first trans person to speak at a major political convention in 2016, and now the first trans state senator. And most of us will never break a single barrier like that, let alone multiple barriers. And I'm wondering, what does it mean to be the first? And is it both a pressure and an honor or... And does it ever get hard to also always have the first attached to your name? First trans woman, you know, is sort of so many of the articles, the headlines say first, first, first. But you're more than a first. You know, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And I think you actually just encapsulated so many of them in the question. First and foremost, (laughs) being the first only matters if I'm not the last. I do view part of my responsibility as utilizing my role to not just leave a Sarah-sized hole in the wall, but rather to help bring down the wall and the barriers that stand in the way of any kind of person fully participating in our society and our democracy. It is both a responsibility and an honor. I'd much rather be the first than not have the opportunity at all and recognizing how lucky I am to have that opportunity, even if it comes with it certain unique challenges or unique responsibilities. Ultimately, I don't really think about it on a day-to-day basis. So I am so focused on the actual day-to-day work of my job that I don't think about 
the sort of symbolic responsibility I might have or the sort of more esoteric, ethereal responsibility that I have to the broader LGBTQ community, because I know that the only way to fulfill any of those responsibilities is to do the best job that I can in this role, right? Is to do the best job for the residents of this district to bring about as much change as I can. And in bringing that change and in doing a good job, it will not only help to bring down those barriers, but it'll help to demonstrate to folks that when you elect diverse candidates, when you elect trans candidates, they're going to be effective change makers. They're going to be effective advocates for their communities. And they're going to be able to work on all of the different issues that they care about and that the community cares about. I think one of the biggest challenges is cutting through the focus on my identity to demonstrate the full diversity of who I am as a person, of the passions that I bring, of the experiences that I bring, and of the work that I'm doing. When we see candidates of different marginalized backgrounds come forward, we're primed and honing in on messages or points that they bring up that might be the exception to what they're talking about, but we're ready and we're primed to think, oh, that person's a niche politician. They're only going to care about women's rights or LG- or social issues, quote unquote. And so demonstrating, one, the breadth of my experience, but two, that all of these issues are inextricably linked, that you can't have an economy that works for everyone if you have anyone kept out of a job because of prejudice or discrimination, but you also can't have equality for everyone if you don't have an economy that works for all. And so breaking through that false distinction in our politics and also demonstrating the full breadth of my issues, my interests, and my work has been one of the major priorities that I've had as a legislator and as a candidate. Okay. After having just acknowledged the breadth of your work, I do want to talk a little bit about trans advocacy with the caveat that obviously you care about many, many issues, but, you know, having your perspective would be so helpful. First, the House just passed the Equality Act, an act that prohibits discrimination based on a person's sexual orientation and gender identity in a bunch of places, employment, education, healthcare, housing, and expands the number of protected public accommodations. What does the Equality Act mean to you? It's a great question. The Equality Act is, like all public policy, not an end in and of itself, but rather a foundation. The Equality Act would make clear that LGBTQ people are permanently and undeniably protected from discrimination. It will reinforce our values, our expectations as a society. It will affirm and reinforce the humanity of our community, the fact that we are part of the valued, rich diversity of our country and our world. And it will lay a foundation. It will provide recourse and it'll help to reinforce for anyone what the right thing to do is. Because I think when all of us are confronted with something that's new or something that's different or something we might not have experience with, some people respond immediately with prejudice, but a lot of people respond based on what they see as the expected response. And the more we change hearts and minds and the more we pass laws that protect people, the clearer the expectation is. A lot of times we talk about how Do we have to change hearts and minds to pass laws or do we need to pass laws to change hearts and minds? And it's a both and approach. We've got to change hearts and minds in order to get the support for these laws. But we also can't underestimate the fact that these laws, they speak to our values and they demonstrate to people what our society expects of a kind and dignified interaction. And so the Equality Act is a critical piece of legislation. It would 
affirm and confirm Supreme Court precedent that we now have, thanks in large part to the ACLU and the Supreme Court decision back in in June of 2020 that said that sex protections protect LGBTQ people. It would ensure that in areas where sex protections don't exist, that we add sex in, that we add the LGBTQ community in, and it would modernize protections for protected communities across the board in public spaces. And so it's a critical next step in our country's journey toward a more just and perfect union. It's a critical next step to modernize our federal non-discrimination laws, and it's a critical next step in the fight for LGBTQ equality. The ACLU in 2021 is focusing a lot on asking the Biden administration to sign an executive order, making it easier for trans and non-binary people to have accurate IDs. And I was wondering what your experience with gender markers on IDs has been. And why is having an ID with an accurate gender marker and name important? Because I think that there's the risk with talking about advocating around IDs to think it's small. It doesn't feel as big as healthcare, employment. But can you explain why it is so important? Yeah. And and I think like so many trans people, I've had experiences early on and especially in my transition where my identity and my name on my driver's license didn't match who I am and resulted in moments of fear, in frankly, moments of ridicule and certainly moments where I was at risk of discrimination. I think all of us probably at some point don't realize how often we use identity documents, how often we engage with a driver's license or any kind of legal documentation that reflects our identities, whether that's in interactions with law enforcement, whether that's in purchasing certain items, whether that's in trying to get a house or a job. Our identity documents come into play in almost every aspect of life in some form or fashion. And when you have identity documents that don't reflect who you are, that out you, it puts you at risk of discrimination, even violence. But then there's also the more sort of fundamental component of identity documents reflecting and affirming who we are, which is the message that it sends, the message that it sends to us as trans people that we are seen. It also feels like it shifts the power dynamic a little bit, that rather than somebody being able to question who somebody is, a police officer pulling you over for a traffic violation, a security guard who's looking at your ID before you can get into a building, that um, being able to have your ID accurately reflect who you are means that you get to say who you are, not you know a police officer, not a security officer. It just seems like a fundamental power dynamic shift. It puts us in control over our destiny, over who we are, which is at the end of the day, one of the most fundamental needs and desires that we have as people, not just trans people, but any of us, to be able to define ourselves, to be able to to control not only our destiny, but how the world interacts with us. And it's one of the reasons why people think that conversations around names and pronouns seem so frivolous, but names and pronouns are the first way we affirm a person's humanity. It's the most common way we affirm a person's humanity. And what are oftentimes the first steps of everyone from bullies to governments that seek to repress? It's to remove people's names. It's to call people it. It's to- Dehumanize. It's a dehumanization. Yeah, it's to dehumanize people. And it's typically the first step in that is the removal of names and pronouns by whether we're talking about individual bullies or whether we're talking about state-sanctioned oppression. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I also wanted to ask, we are starting to see, once again, an influx of legislation and conversations in the House, among other places, around banning trans athletes in sports. And, you know, the conversation, as, as you already know, has particularly involved trans women and whether or not they should be eligible to play on women's teams for fear that they would have some kind of physical advantage. This seems to be just the latest frontier of a long-going spate of anti-trans attacks. First, maybe it was adoption, and then bathrooms, and now sports. How do you look at this latest frontier? You know, why sports and what do all of these bands have in common with each other? So I, I think a couple of things. One, we have continuously seen this encroachment, this sort of diminishment of the terrain that anti-trans forces are arguing on, right? At one point, it was the entirety of the validity of trans people. I mean, certainly they're still arguing that, but that was where the sort of mainstream debate was. Then it sort of moved to bathrooms, and now it's sort of shrunk to this island of athletics in many ways. But it's all part and parcel of the same goal, which is to undermine the validity of trans people's identities, whether they were just flat out saying trans women aren't women and trans women aren't real is the same argument that was at the heart of trying to ban trans people from restrooms consistent with our gender identity. It was to say trans people aren't who they are. And similarly, in the context of sports, it's an attempt to say trans people aren't who they are. And we will codify in law statements that other eyes that stigmatize and that undermine the validity and reality of trans lives. I think that the total hypocrisy of folks who have long resisted any kind of parity and funding under Title IX and any kind of meaningful investment in women's sports are now suddenly hyper-concerned about women's sports is quite a leap of priorities and a change in tune. And it just doesn't reflect the full diversity in the spectrum of gender that exists in our society and in women's sports in general, even if you take trans people out of the equation. By definition, the most successful athletes are sort of physiologically, biologically unique, right? And you see in Michael Phelps, the certain physical advantages that he has, no one talks about that. But suddenly when we get into the space of trans women, when we get into the space of intersex folks, when we get in the space of women of color, suddenly we start to use this language of unfair advantage when we don't do that in any other instances of uh, particularly white men in athletics or even really white women in athletics who reflect a broad range of skill and aptitude and capacity. And so one, it just ignores that fundamental truth and that broad diversity that just exists. But it's also no coincidence that these attacks around particularly trans youth in sports, are also happening at the same time where we're seeing legislative attempts to undermine trans access to transition-related care. <laughs> because all of this goes together, right? They say trans women, a trans 16-year-old is going to have a hypothetical competitive advantage because they've gone through puberty based on their sex assigned at birth. And yet at the same time, want to exclude that youth from having any kind of access to the transition-related care that would prevent that youth from going through the traumatic experience of puberty based on their sex assigned at birth. It's not about access to care. It's not about competitiveness in sports. What it is truly about is making life so difficult for trans young people that they never grow up to be trans adults. And that doesn't mean they grow up to be cis adults. It means they don't grow up at all. And that tactic is not 
just in the LGBTQ space. I mean, we've seen that with reproductive health. We see that in a lot of spaces that if you just make it so hard and chip away, chip away, chip away, the assumption that magically it will all just disappear, that we will stop being who we are, that we'll stop meeting the life-affirming care that we need. And it it has never worked out. Like, I don't know why it's still happening. I mean, it certainly is effective in some ways at making life harder, but it doesn't erase anybody. Everybody is who they are. Right. It doesn't erase need. All that it does is it creates barriers to people living. Right. Right. I do want to end by cheating a little bit and having you answer a question that I read you often ask yourself. Anytime someone has a marginalized identity, they can become pigeonholed or reduced in some way to only being that identity. And I read that you like to ask yourself, how do you do justice by the trans community while also doing justice to your whole self? So, Sarah, how do you do that? Well, it's something that I I think about every single day. As you mentioned, it's something that I certainly try to balance. I think it's being proud of who I am, unashamedly, unabashedly, vocally proud of who I am as a trans person, recognizing that that is a part of me that enhances who I am, that I am grateful for. It is a perspective that I am proud to bring to the table in this legislature, but to also, so to never shy away from that, but to also make clear that I am a full human being with a whole host of identities, many privileged, some marginalized, different life experiences, some great, some hard, but that I bring all of myself to the table. And that includes all of the different issues that I'm passionate about, which are also issues that trans people, that LGBTQ people face every single day. My governing philosophy is rooted in the Audre Lorde quote that there's no such thing as a single-issue cause because no one lives single-issue lives. And I think if we remember that in our governing while also being proud of who we are and never shying away from sharing that pride, I think that all of us can strike that balance of doing justice to our communities and to our identities and to ourselves and to our wholeness. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation and for taking the time out from what I'm sure is a very busy uh, just life (laughs) right now. So thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on and for this great conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for the rest of March as we talk to more incredible leaders for Women's History Month. And don't forget to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.